Well, I hope you picked up that uh, the passage this morning in 1 Corinthians was not the book of Genesis, because we're, we're actually going to step away from uh, the story of Joseph, and we're going to go to a New Testament passage that actually applies what we've been learning. And we picked 1 Corinthians as the reading this morning because in it, over and over and over, it, it gives us the pattern that, that we're going to see Jesus use in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, so if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the Old Testament was, was written. The Old Testament saints were no different than, than we are as far as what was required to attain righteousness. They were looking toward Christ. We were looking toward the, the fact that He is coming. We are looking back to the fact that He has already come and He has accomplished. So in one sense, they were, as Hebrews 11 tells us, looking forward by faith, hoping in, in, in the promise of God of His coming. And we are looking back by, by faith in the fact that He did come as the Messiah and lived and, 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 and died. And, and in that passage in 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us that all of the things that happened in the Old Testament are for our example. It's an example. It, the Old Testament reveals to us who God is and the promise that He is fulfilling and yet it does that in human life and events. And as you look at the children of Israel and Moses or Judah or Joseph or, or David or whoever it is, yes, the main character is God, but, but God is revealed on the, on the, the stage of life. And, and you find examples there of how people responded to God and how God responded to them. And yet in all of that, First Corinthians tells us that that the hope that they had, the one that they looked toward was Christ. It was, it was the rock Christ that, that they drank from, meaning that, that their hope was not in the law, their hope was not in being children of Israel, their, their hope was in the one who was coming. The same place our hope uh, is at. And all of those stories that, that are there are vivid illustrations for us, of how, how we're to respond to, to God in life. That whole passage in 1 Corinthians ends with this admonition that, that your life is common, the temptations that you face are common unto man, but God will provide a way, and He has provided a way. And that's Jesus Christ. Maybe I can say it this way. Like when you read Noah, the story of, of Noah, we're not commanded to to build an ark and listen for the voice of God like Noah, but we do have a brilliant picture of what radical obedience looks like. I mean, when you read the story of Noah, you're sitting there thinking, I mean, you're building this literal ark where it's never rained in the middle of a, of a place and everyone is saying, what's wrong with this guy? He's, he's, he's crazy. It's a picture of, of faith. Radical obedience by faith. We're... We're not commanded to leave our families and home place like Abraham and set out for a piece of property and keep going until God says stop. But we do have an illustration there of trust in the call of, of, of Abraham. And all of those point us to, to our ultimate hope, which is in, 
which is in Christ. And these stories are written to reveal our great God and, and learn human lessons from the characters. In fact, Romans 15 verse 4 says basically the same thing as 1 Corinthians does. It tells us the purpose of the Old Testament. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, says, Search the Scriptures, because they speak of, of Me. And your main problem, He says to them, is you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And the power of God is put on display in the Scriptures because the Scriptures reveal how God fulfills His promises. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus, right? I mean, He is the, he's the, the point, is righteousness. So whenever we we look at at the Old Testament of Judah, Joseph, or whoever, we we look to what the story is teaching us about God, but also be instructed, and they point us toward our hope in Jesus. And we're going to go to the the Sermon on the Mount. It's a classic passage. We're going to look at it from beginning to end this morning. We we talked about it someone on Wednesday night in in our adult Bible study class. And, and I picked it because Jesus specifically says at the end of of chapter four, Matthew says that that Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and this is the very first time we find in the in the New Testament where where Jesus gives a sermon. He's been preaching, but Matthew gives us the details of, of, of what Christ was preaching. And, and you'll find in this, in this sermon that, that he uses the, the Old Testament. And we're going to learn how we can properly use that and then look at our own, own lives to, today. Verse 25 of Matthew 4 is the transition to, to chapter 5. And it says, great multitudes were following Jesus. He's healing, he's, he's, he's doing these great works, and great multitudes were following Him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. And 5.1 it says, and seeing the multitudes, He went up on the mountain, He went up on the hillside, the grassy knoll that was above overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, this multitude of, of people. And it says he opened his mouth and, and he taught them. He taught them saying, very familiar words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And over and over he introduces this sermon with something that makes you scratch your head of how you could be blessed and be poor in spirit, but, but he ends every statement to do with with the kingdom, with righteousness, with heaven. It's, he sets up the sermon. He introduces this whole thing that's pointing toward, toward entering into the, 
entering into the kingdom. He sits down in the position of a teacher and begins to teach the ways of the kingdom and the way into the kingdom. It's exactly what Matthew's saying. He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom and now he gives in detail what he's been preaching. I don't believe this message was given over 50 minutes like we will this morning or whatever the time frame will be, but probably over several days. It's repeated over and over throughout the Gospels. And it begins in verse 1 and continues all the way through Matthew chapter 7, verse 27. It's set up very similar to, to the way that you would instruct a homiletics class or a preaching class. It has an introduction, which we just read, the Beatitudes. It, that introduction leads to, uh, leads to a proposition or a point that's found in verse 17. Jesus says, don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. And, and then he's going to support his, his, his proposition or his point, the way into the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. He's going to support that in, with two points, and then he's going to bring it to a conclusion and give an invitation at the, at the end. Uh, lay before people two ways to live, two choices that... That you can, that you can have. The sermon has two sides of the same coin. It reveals how, for you, if you're a believer, how followers of the king are to followers of the king are to live. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. You can learn what you're to desire, what you're to strive toward, the way in which you are to 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 apply the law, delight in the law of God, the Ten Commandments that that He will He'll unfold here. In your life, it's the way you're supposed to do it, knowing that it will be imperfectly, it will be an imperfect striving, but, but it's, it's your target, it's, it's what you desire. David said he delighted in the, in the law of God. Paul in Romans 7 says that, that, that the law of God was something that, that he rejoiced in, but he found in his life a, uh, an imperfect keeping of that, that law. And then he ends the same place where Jesus will end. Who will, who will deliver me from this body of death that, that I now have a desire to love God and please God and yet I find in my sinful frailties uh, a continual failing in, in commission and omission. So, who, will, who will rectify or who will change this dilemma? I thank God Jesus Christ will ultimately deliver me from from this body and ultimate redemption one day. And that's the same place that, that Jesus points us to. There's two sides of the same coin. It reveals how followers of the King are to live. And it also holds up a mirror to those who are trusting in anything other than Christ for salvation. And it's a call to salvation. If I was witnessing to, to someone that that did not trust in Christ, I would take them to this sermon and walk them through it just the same way I would walk you this morning and bring them to the same conclusion and lay before them the same thing that Jesus lays before them. And I would, I would take the, the, the life of, of kingdom followers and say this is, this is the standard. You meet that just the same way Jesus does. And you look at it in those two ways. The sermon uses the Old Testament because that's what you have here, what Jesus is quoting from. He uses it as a mirror to hold up God's holy standards. 
to show us our inability to measure up to them. And, and then, depending upon how you would approach it, it will either reflect the hideous nature of our sin or the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've embraced, who fulfilled the law. And the invitation at the end is to receive His work in complete fulfillment, which is where we all have we all have hope. So we're going to follow the servant's flow and into the same place that Jesus did. It's a call Christ makes concerning the way of His, His kingdom. You can go ahead and put the, the outline up there in its entirety and we'll, we'll walk through it. In this sermon, Jesus calls for a righteousness that surpasses outward conformity or just keeping it externally, just measuring up. And I'll show you exactly how He, how he reveals that and, and what I mean by that. Then Jesus calls for a righteousness that is practiced before God and not only men. And then call, Christ calls for entrance through His righteousness alone in in chapter 7. Let's look at the, the introduction again, the Beatitudes. He introduces this message in verse 3 with, the, with this phrase or this term, blessed or blissful or contented. Happy is the person. Happy is the man who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He says these characteristics render them blessed, and those characteristics are characteristics of genuine faith. Someone who's poor in spirit is is someone who recognizes their spiritual poverty. They're blessed because they recognize they have nothing to offer God. And and the people that, that recognize they're poor in spirit, they're in a state of spiritual poverty, they have nothing to offer God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who's getting into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here as He introduces this. Blessed are those who mourn, those who, who mourn over their sin. They'll be comforted. They'll be comforted by God's forgiveness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who, who know as they, as they, they know that there, there's a God and they, they, they hear the law and they see His perfections and His holiness and they know that, that, that they don't attain that. They don't measure up to that. So they hunger and thirst. He uses these two terms as if you're, as if you're, you're parched and you, you haven't had anything to drink for a long time, or food, and, and, and those people that recognize they have nothing in themselves look for it outside of themselves and look for it ultimately in Christ. And, and they'll, be, they'll be filled. That hunger and thirst will, will be satisfied because Jesus will be their, their righteousness. Look at verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The whole sermon is a contrast between two ways to live, two paths, which is where Jesus ends. And after introducing the sermon, he, he gets to the point. What does it take to enter the kingdom of heaven? 
Look at verse 17, because he's now going to begin talking about the Old Testament specifically, although he's echoed it in, in the introduction. He says, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. He encompasses all the Old Testament, uh, uh, the, the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch, and, and all of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. came to fulfill the demands. For assuredly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by, by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. The, the law will not change. The bar is not lowered in, in any way. It is the Word of God. It, 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 you can trust in God fulfilling His his commands to a greater degree than you can trust where the world is going to be here tomorrow. As a matter of fact, the very word that God used to speak the world into existence, Peter tells us, is the same word that God will speak and the earth will melt in fervent heat. That is the power of the word of God. So Jesus says, don't think that what I'm getting ready to say to you or what I'm preaching to you is in any way to take away from or to change or to alter what God has already declared. He said, it is sure, it is fixed. The gospel of grace does not lower the bar to where God says, okay, now, because of Jesus, He's such a nice guy, you're all getting in. All that stuff I said in the Old Testament, I was just being mean then. Now I'm going to be nice because Jesus is nice. That's not, that's not the gospel. As a matter of fact, He's going to show how high the bar is. He states He fulfills the, the law. He accomplishes it. I fulfill what the law could not provide. I, I accomplish what you could not accomplish. The law is not set aside. It's eternal. It's, it's permanent. More permanent than the physical realm. And, and then as we, we noted on Wednesday night, Jesus makes one of the most shocking statements of the whole sermon. And I think it's the linchpin. It's the hinge on which he'll turn the introduction to, to begin to apply the, apply the message. It's in verse 20. Verse 19, he warns the disciples, he warns his followers, whoever breaks one of the least of the commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of, of heaven. Don't do that. Don't. Don't alter the law. Don't, don't lay it down. If you're one of my followers, don't do that because you'll be least in the, in the kingdom. He's clearly talking to those who are sincere or his followers there because they're getting in the kingdom. The way you should do it is, is a person who, who teaches the law in its proper form is they'll be great in the kingdom. They'll be praised by God. Don't teach it that way. But who's getting in the kingdom? Verse 20. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness, the righteousness of those who listen to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a definitive statement. And it's a shocking statement. It would have been a breathtaking statement to people. Put yourself in Galilee in these days that the religious system that everyone is looking toward is, is the scribes and the Pharisees in the synagogue. 
people that they considered righteous, people that they considered were the experts in the law. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness, unless you attain a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not least in the kingdom, you're not getting in the kingdom. You see that? This is a matter of heaven or hell. This is a matter of whether you're getting in the kingdom or you're not getting in the kingdom. And he says that the bar, the standard, is above, it exceeds those that are controlling the religious system of the day. As we said on Wednesday night, it would be like someone saying to a devout Catholic, unless you're more spiritual than the Pope, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pope, you're not going to heaven. You're not even going to purgatory. You're going straight to hell. That's, that's, that's how serious. Unless, it'd be like saying to a Muslim, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the prophet Muhammad, you have no hope of ever entering into heaven. How could I be more righteous than, than that? I mean, that, that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here, and they understood the point. And now he's going to go into supporting that, that statement. And that's the first, first part of the outline. Jesus, in verse 21 through the rest of this chapter, by going through the Ten Commandments, is going to call for a righteousness that surpasses just outward conformity. In the system of Jesus' day, you were considered someone who was righteous, or you would have been considered someone who met the demands of God if you met the law in your actions, if you didn't murder, if you didn't commit adultery, if you got the, the piece of paper that was the writ of divorcement from Moses, if, if you swore an oath. And Jesus says that alone, while that is demanded, that alone does not fulfill God's law and is not righteousness that will allow you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Look what he says in verse 21. He starts with, You have heard it was said of those of old, You shall not murder. Now remember, he's not undoing the law. He's fulfilling it. And whoever murders is in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, I'm giving you the proper interpretation of God's law. I am setting the bar where it's supposed to be set. I'm holding up the mirror of thou shalt not murder to you, Jesus says, regardless of what you heard and what you've been teaching. And look into this mirror and see what you see. Unless your righteousness matches what you see here, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. And he uses, he goes through from, from verse 21 through the end of, of the chapter, six common teachings that were rooted in the, in the Old Testament, that had been weakened by human interpretation. He covers murder, he covers adultery, he covers covenant commitment, he covers oaths, he covers personal retaliation, and he covers love. And he gives the current, he did the same pattern all the way through in this first point. He covers the current religious teaching. This is what you're being told. This is what you understand. This is what you have been presented as righteousness that God demands. But I say unto you, this is the true standard. And he shows the motive of the heart. God applies the law not just to what you do, not just to what I 
don't do, but He applies it to your heart. He applies it to your motives. He applies it to your thoughts. Would you be... Um, would you be comfortable if the person next to you right now could read your mind and know your thoughts? Would you be comfortable if everyone around you knew exactly the motive that was in your heart at all the time? I mean, we try to cover our actions, and it would be petrifying. You've seen these, they make movies and, and sitcoms and others where, where the, the the, the person is cursed, you know, it's the, the, the guy who's the jerk who, who uh, goes around and dates all the girls and dumps them, and so he's cursed with everybody knows what he's thinking, something like that. Wouldn't that be a, that'd be a scary thought if everybody knew exactly what you were thinking? You know, God knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows before you even think it. And you know that He measures your thoughts and my thoughts to His law, and that's part of whether you are righteous enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven, not just whether you act on those thoughts. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? And that's what Jesus says here. I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. It's not just the outward committing a murder, pulling the trigger, or not pulling the trigger that makes you, that makes you guilty. You violate the law by the, by the malice that's in your heart that can lead to pulling the, the trigger. I mean, the whole hillside is murmuring at this point. Are you kidding me? Jesus says the internal attitude that violates God's law is, is not just the outward manifestation of anger. It begins, the violation begins with the, with the anger. He says you become guilty before God. You're, you're in danger of judgment. Long before you ever get to the point where you act by harming someone, you become guilty before God. And he goes on, verse 27. And he just starts walking through the Ten Commandments. To, he doesn't walk through every commandment here. Here's the obvious ones. Adultery. Here's the one that we referenced with the Joseph passage, verse 27. You have heard... Those of old, you should not commit adultery, but I say unto you. Whoever looks upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See where he applies the law? It's to the heart. It's not just a physical act. Obviously, lusting in your heart is not on the same level as acting on it, but both violate God's law. Where do you become guilty? Is the guilty the stepping over the line, a transgression? Or do you become guilty before God with the iniquity that's in your heart? Jesus says it's the iniquity that's in your heart, not just stepping over the, the line or the transgression. He says you're an adulterer by God's standard when you commit, not when you commit the act, but the moment that you long in your heart for someone other than your wife or your husband. And your thoughts are open before God. Again, the law is applied to the heart and isn't that what the Old Testament says? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every part of you. Your physical body, your, your thoughts, every, every, every part of you. 
Jesus said that's the summary of the law, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deep abiding loyalty to God from the heart, in mind and action. It's, it's all of you. It's, and if not, you've come up short. You, you fall short of the glory of God. You miss the bar. Verse 31, he goes to covenant keeping. It has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a writ of divorcement. The people heard the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 to mean that a, a writ or certificate of divorcement was for, was for legal purposes. It was, it was paperwork you needed. The divorce would be okay. It would be, it would be in order. And you wouldn't be considered an adulterer on the basis of the scribes and the Pharisees. But you could still be in line with God's law if you got the piece of paper. So long as you follow the procedure... You could divorce for almost any reason at that point. And Jesus says that's not the point. He says here the law is not about regulating divorce. It's about the covenant made to begin with. And that's where the law is applied. Covenants are binding and not thrown off easily. Violating them makes you a lawbreaker. And you had you had people in that system that, that had their... Think of it like the Catholic indulgence. I got the piece of paper from the Pope that says, I'm, I'm good to go. Committed to sin. I got, the, I got the, the root of divorcement, so I'm not a covenant breaker. And Jesus says that, that doesn't make you any less of a covenant breaker than, than the man in the moon. I mean, the murmuring's probably stopped at this point. Silence. His fall. I mean, I cannot look into the law of God on this side of the gospel. I mean, this is the first side of the gospel. This is the mirror revealing our need of a Savior. I can't look into that side and be happy. <laughs> I mean, it's devastating. The other side, I can't look into the other side, which is where we're going without just, just bursting into to joyous tears and smiles to know that I'm forgiven before God. Because everything I see in this, in this mirror is a reflection of my own heart, but everything I see when I look into the friendly face of Christ is God's satisfaction. His righteousness is fulfilled. Mercy is obtained. Peace is given. I'm comforted. Who's the person that's been comforted? It's someone who was uncomforted to begin with. Are you uncomfortable whenever you hear these, these statements? You should be. That's the point. But God's not going to leave you uncomforted. He's going to bring the Gospel in. Oaths in verse 33, he says, Again, you've heard it was said of those, You shall not swear falsely. But you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say unto you, don't swear at all by either heaven, for it is God's throne, or the earth is footstool. And the Jews would swear by, by God's altar or the city and the city of Jerusalem to help you know, make people believe Him. It's like saying, I'm really going to tell the truth this time. I swear on the Bible. What it's like saying. See how serious I am? I mean, you need to really... Put weight in my words. And Jesus said that that's the wrong way to look at it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You become a liar when all of your words are not truthful. Not just whenever you swear by something that is really important to God. 
That's God's standard. All of our speech should be trustworthy. Is all of your speech trustworthy? Do you ever say things that attempt to... You know, they're truthful, factually, but, but they're presented in a different way for your favor or, or in a way that keeps you from looking bad or in a way that... I mean, the facts are there, but the intent of the heart is to deceive. And Jesus says, that's where thou shalt not lie is applied. The intent of the heart is to deceive. You can be doing that and not even be aware of that. Like David says, his secret faults. <laughs> Who can stand before God? Who can stand before, before this, this law? He's correcting a misinterpretation of the law and says, you are... He gets to the end there about loving and retaliation. The Jews said you're only obligated to love your family and other Jews. And if you do, then you met the law. God's standard is to love those that, that love you back, that's what they said. And Jesus says, no, God's law says love those who don't deserve it, who don't love you back, and then prove that with your actions. This is, this is not a statement that says that there are not times whenever you defend your family or fight in war or that you just let everybody, you know, okay, go ahead and punch me here. All right, go ahead and punch me here. That's not the point. It's not what he's... The point is... What is being presented as meeting the standard of God? This is God's standard. Love your family, love other Jews, and love people who, who are good to you. And your enemies, you don't care at all about them. Those filthy Samaritans, they're half-breeds, they're, they're worthless people, those Gentiles, they're dogs. I mean, that's what he's attacking here. He's saying love, the standard of loving your neighbor goes beyond Jews and family, it goes to the Samaritans. Isn't that why Jesus uses the Good Samaritan as an example? And that's the point. And He teaches these same things over and over and over. This is the gospel of the kingdom. And He's, he's showing them. John the Baptist came in preparation for the Messiah, in preparation for the gospel of the kingdom, to show them God's true intent to call them to repentance and faith. And John the Baptist, who paved the way for Christ, said what? Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus says, you're not getting in the kingdom unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and, and Pharisees. Look at how he ends this whole thing. Look at verse 48 of chapter 5. Just in case you found a way to squeak in by some self-justification, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody in here perfect? He covers everything. And then he turns the other side of the coin, not just what they were hearing from the law, but but their practice. He says, this is the true meaning of the law. Be perfect. And you say, how can I attain that? I mean, that's cruel. It's an impossible standard. I mean, is God some taskmaster? That's, that's not cruel. People who realize that His standard is perfect, those are the ones who are blessed. Because when you realize the standard is perfection, and you can't meet the standard, you're blessed because it makes you spiritually poor and it makes you hunger and thirst for righteousness. It reveals your need. And before you ever come to the Savior, you have to see the fact that you need 
Savior. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's being compassionate. Shouldn't God just tell people, do the best you can, and God will see your sincerity and overlook it in the end? Isn't that good news? That's horrible news. It's a horrible God. And that's the message that many of the religions preach and the world embraces, and that's not compassion at all. The Gospel says, this is the standard, and you didn't measure up, but Jesus did. And He's freely offered to you by faith. And you're blessed if you realize it. So people either try to alter the meaning of the law or they try to elevate themselves higher through practice. And so that's the second point there. Jesus calls for righteousness, practice before God. And not only men, look at how... Verse 1 of chapter 6 begins, Take heed, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Do you see that? Beware. Now he's going to go to the outward practice, righteousness practiced. They said this is the standard of righteousness. You've heard, but I say unto you, righteousness goes to the heart. The second thing that they did was they talked about righteousness practiced. This is how they practice. This is outwardly. And they evaluated themselves based upon what other people thought. Three areas of Jewish religious system are covered here. Giving of alms, prayer, fasting. And then he talks about wealth, the whole treasure principle. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The Jews said that earthly blessing, having treasures, having stuff, was an evidence of God's seal of approval of your life. It was proof that you are righteous. Can you name any rich people in America today that are wicked? Of course you can. Can you name any righteous people, people that are trusting in Christ and seeking after the Lord that are poor? Yeah, I can think of a lot of them too. Righteousness is based on Christ and your earthly condition, whether God has placed resources in your hands or whether He hasn't, whether you've worked hard and taken the opportunities, and whether that's produced something or whether it hasn't produced anything. It's not a base, a fail-safe evidence of God's approval, but that's what the Jews said. That's the reason in Luke 16 where Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? They saw outward blessing, and Jesus covers all of that. And he talks about not being anxious about your wealth or your father's going to provide for you. In every case, all of these practices are designed for men to see. They gave alms so other people can see. They prayed in long robes and outwardly so others can see when they fasted. They did it so others can see. And obviously, there are times when you can see earthly wealth. The self-righteous treasure the praise of men because it masks their lack of the praise that they get from God. Same pattern. Don't seek the praise of men, he says. 6 1, 6 2, 6 5, he says the same thing. 
Don't seek the praise of men, but when you pray, pray to your Father, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He says, don't seek the praise of men. He assures them that all that that's all the praise that hypocrites will get is the praise of men. He tells them how to practice the actions by faith before God in secret and then promises God's praise if they, if they seek Him. He's saying beware of these practices. Take heed that you don't just do it before men to be seen by them. And all of those outward props, they wanted people to think that they were something whenever they're whenever there were not. It's easy to fool people, isn't it? It might take some skill. You might have to learn how to do it. Some people are pretty sharp. It's possible. Is it possible to fool God? You can delete your internet history, but the Lord knows every click that you made before you deleted it. Outward props. Why is it so hard to seek forgiveness or confess sin? Because we really want people to think we're a whole lot better than we are. And a lot of religious practice is for people rather than God. And if that's hard in a church where the gospel is preached, can you imagine what it was like in a system that promoted hypocrisy that the Jews had created? There's a system. In that system, there is no salvation. And Jesus says there are basically only two systems. And that's where He ends. Call to enter through Christ alone. Look at chapter 7, verse 13. He covers all this outward practice. And then He draws the conclusion. He brings it to the, to the end. Verse 12, he gives what's called the golden rule. Summary of everything. Therefore, what you want men to do, do also unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. If you're able to do that, then you fulfill the law and the prophets. But you're not able to do that. And then he ends the whole thing. Here's the invitation. It's a series of contrasts. It's two ways to enter. Enter by the narrow gate. Narrow gate, wide gate. Two kinds of people. Those who bear fruit, those who don't. Two destinations, the joy of the Lord, depart from me. Two builders, wise and foolish. There are really only two ways. You can dress it up and call it whatever religion that you want. Here's the invitation. It's the inevitable decision that everyone is confronted with in these, with these truths. You've heard the law rightly presented in this sermon. You know that practice is not just what what meets righteousness is not just what other people see, it's what God sees. And it's doing it for Him, and it's doing it perfectly. You've heard that presented, and you're confronted with these truths, and, and there's a decision that's made. You will remain attempting to supply your own way, Jesus says. That's one way. And fall into damnation at the end. Or... You'll abandon these attempts, acknowledge your sinfulness, and look to Christ. You decide. Two ways, two gates, two destinations. There's one right way. There are many wrong ways. 
But all those wrong ways are, are the same way. Self-righteousness, human attainment, hypocrisy. Pray five times today, pray one time a year. I don't care. If, if, if you're attributing righteousness to your actions, it falls into that broad way. That's what he means by the, the, the wide or the broad way, that there, there are many on that road. It's, it's a wide path. You want to try to climb up to heaven that way, you can take your choice. I mean, they're lined up right there, but they're all heading to the same place. And then there is a, there's a narrow gate. There's a door. It says, enter through that gate. It's, think about the entrance of a gate. Think of Pilgrim's Progress coming to that gate. Jesus has been an evangelist. He's brought you from the city of destruction across the field and taking you through the dangers of people trying to turn. He's, he's, he's held up the mirror of the law, and you're at the gate now. And you enter through that, through that gate. And entering through a gate's not a halfway thing, right? I mean, you either enter or you don't. You're either on one side of the gate or on the other side of the gate. And there's no, you know, I'm, I'm on a missional journey here. I'm trying to figure out, you know, God and I have got this thing going, and one day it's going to become clear to me. You're either, you're either in the gate or you're outside of the gate. And he uses three words. It's a gate, it's narrow, it's small. He's, the way is, is singular, it's exclusive. And it's costly. There are few that, that enter by it and, and find it. It's pretty attractive to be able to lower the law, to be able to practice your righteousness before others for the praise of others. It's pretty attractive when the other way can get you the, the ridicule of others. can get you nothing from human beings. As a matter of fact, it can cost you everything. Entering the gate, embracing the gospel is an exchange. It's all you are for all He is. And after you've just walked through this sermon, you realize there's not a whole lot there to offer, is there? All you are in all of your sinfulness. For all Christ is in all of His righteousness. And these two ways, it encompasses repentance. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is, is not a work. It's a change of disposition. Change of your mind towards sin and toward God. It's a turning away from sin for Christ. It's an acknowledgement. It's a... It's a person who sees themselves poor in spirit. A person who's meek. A person who's hungry and thirsting for righteousness to desperately obtain what they, what they do not have. It's seeking the Lord while He may be found. It's, it's, that's, the, that's the condition of the heart that, the, that Jesus is trying to elicit. It's where He wants your heart whenever you hear the law and the, and the Gospels. Because those are in that condition, then, then He comes and He fills them and comforts them. and There's the trust. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean other than full trust in, in His worth? I'm not pleasing to the Father. 
that Jesus was fully, completely pleasing to the Father. I didn't. I broke the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. And then he, he died and bore the penalty for breaking the law. He earned my righteousness and paid for my sin and is my substitute. And repentance and faith toward Him is where He calls us to, two ways. So let me ask you, which way are you seeking to enter? Well, one way is, is hard. It requires humbling yourself. It requires acknowledging all of that. It requires living truthfully before God, which may mean people are going to figure out what God already knows about you. But when you come to God naked and poor, He covers you with robes of righteousness. And I will happily sit at Christ's table as a spiritual Mephibosheth and try to pretend that I'm something that I'm not because I'm not righteous. But my Lord is. And He can be your Lord if you'll trust in Him alone for salvation.